From the Defense Acquisition University, this is the Learning Circle. This is the Learning Circle. I'm Anthony Rotolo, and I'm joined today by Julie Dirksen, who we've had the privilege of visiting with before. So happy to have you back. Thank yes, you. Yes, happy to be here. Julie is an independent consultant and instructional designer specializing in instructional design, behavior change, cognitive psychology, and she's the author of Design for How People Learn. It's in its second edition now from Peach Pit. And late last year, Julie was awarded the eLearning Guild Guildmaster Award. What an honor. Congratulations on Thank that. Thank you. Thank you. Julie, thank you for joining us again today. I wanted to speak to you today about the concept of flow, mm-hmm. F-L-O-W, the flow state, and put it into a context of learning if we can. We've been hearing a bit more about this idea in recent years. There's that author whose name I cannot pronounce. I'm going to throw that to you. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, more yes. or less. Yeah, that's easy for you to say. I can't right. promise it's quite right. <laughs> And he he's done, he has his book and he's done some TED Talks on it that are great. But he describes flow as really this ideal state to be in, really, really the, be living your life optimally. And uh, I think for most of us, we talk about being in the zone. Uh, but how do you properly define the flow state? Um, usually when I'm explaining the concept, I'll ask people if they've ever had the experience where they're working on something really intensely and they look up and they feels like 15 minutes, but they realize that three hours have gone by. Um, and everybody pretty much can go, oh yeah, yeah, I've had that happen to me in the past. And that's basically what we mean when we talk about flow state. It's that state of real engagement that just means that time flies by and it seems like you know, even though you're really intensely working on something or really intensely engaged in something that all of a sudden it's two hours later and it, you know, it feels like 10 minutes or 15 minutes or something like that. Yeah. I feel that it's a full immersion, right? Mm-hmm. Just this utter absorption. I get that a lot when I'm doing development tasks, when I'm, you know, using software or something that is maybe I'm in a program like Photoshop and I'm doing something complicated or, or it could be anything. I could be writing. Writing is another kind of a time machine for me. I, I look up and, you know, an hour has gone by and it felt like 10 minutes. It's really amazing. I know personally when I'm learning new things, learning is kind of an interesting case of this. I'm really absorbed and I'm excited about what I'm learning. It's almost like a chemical high. It's, I think, in terms of brain chemistry, almost like a runner's high. I feel very alive and alert and I'm imagining that's the case for everybody. But is there like a brain reason for that? Uh, you know, I don't know if anybody's really tried to map, um, you know, say the neurotransmitter stuff that's going on with flow or anything like that. I, I can certainly have some theories about that sort of prolonged state of alertness and some of those kinds of things. I'm sure there's an adrenaline component, that kind of thing, but, um, or glucose but I, or, uh... yeah, probably, um, you know, one of the, one of the things that I think we talked about attention somewhat the last time we talked, mm-hmm. um, is this idea that, you know, we have this idea that our attention spans are really short and yet a really good movie proves that that's wrong. You know, um, in the example I always give is that, uh, there's people near my house who go to their Lord of the Rings marathon every year and love it, love it, you know, and that's 
11 or 13 hours or something. Yeah. It's not a small undertaking. Um, and so, you know, and obviously I, I don't think we can talk about flow state without talking about video games. You know, there's situations where people stay really, really engaged with the game for hours and hours and hours. And it has something to do with staying, um, so essentially one of the, the the sort of main characteristics of flow state is that you're on this kind of balance point between challenge and ability. So things that are too challenging for your ability level are frustratingly hard. So if you've ever tried to pick up a video game and just been all thumbs at it from the beginning and you can't figure it out and you can't seem to make any progress, you'll usually put it back down again unless you're unless you're well, pretty you know, determined. I'm dating myself, but I grew up with the very simple Atari joystick. Mm-hmm. So I had those too. You hand me those ones with all the buttons and two different joysticks. I'm, I yep. get kind of lost. Yeah, and in fact, the Nintendo Wii with controller, which has the motion control, came about not because they um, were determined to do something you know fancy with motion control, although I'm sure that they um, that that was on the agenda. But really, what they were trying to do when they created those controllers was they had found that the video game console controllers that had all those buttons were really only accessible to people who were willing to put in a fair bit of time to get proficient at them. And so if you committed to it and you had a fair bit of proficiency, you could play all sorts of games with those controllers. But if you were not a console game player, the um, the barrier to entry for console games was getting harder and harder as these controllers got more complex. And they were finding that they were limiting their audience by having such complex controllers. And so the I think the mission statement behind the Wii, and I'm going to get the quote kind of wrong, but, you know, grandma on Christmas morning can play it, basically. Mm, yeah. And, um, and you know, totally true. You can play Wii Tennis. You can pick up and play Wii Tennis with about two seconds of, of instruction and you're ready to go. Simple and intuitive. I find that the when I have been fixated with a video game, it's often that edge of frustration mm-hmm. and challenge that you're describing. Like you are, you know, to use a, a familiar example, it could be Pac-Man or mm-hmm. something where you're just shy of getting out of that board alive, gobbling up the pellets, and that's where you fail. Mm-hmm. And so you keep, you, you know, if there's something in you that you're a little annoyed, you're challenged, you want to keep at it. And so there's this like a breakaway Thing you can't break away from what it is you're doing because you, you you want to keep doing it until you get it right, mm-hmm. and it's a different kind of absorption. But it's another thing that just totally commands our attention. Yeah. So if you think of like an x y axis, that if the x is is challenge, so how how difficult is the thing you're doing, and the y is ability. Um, what we're looking at is that that sort of upper quadrant of um, high challenge and low ability is a very frustrating space. And that lower challenge quadrant, um, that sort of lower right quadrant where you're in, your ability far exceeds the challenge. My, uh, my nephew, who's super adorable, um, six, we play some tic-tac-toe because that's his favorite game at the moment. And, you know, when you're, when you're an adult, tic-tac-toe is not that challenging a game. <laughs> so it's not really a very absorbing experience. Now, hanging out with my nephew is an absorbing experience, and so that's great. But the game itself, not so much. Yeah, like that, yeah. That's not how I would choose to spend my time is playing tic-tac-toe, right? Um, and so that's a case on the other side of things, where if your ability far exceeds the level of challenge, then you get into the space where it's pretty boring. You know, you're just not being challenged. There's nothing interesting for you to do. And so there's what's referred to as the flow channel, which kind of cuts the line between those. So sometimes your ability is a little stretched. You have to kind of, you kind of have to reach hard. Sometimes you get to 
to relax and cruise a little bit, but you've kind of got this, you're right kind of up, up and down across this line of where, you know, where your challenge is. It's like a di- diagonal upward mm-hmm. curvy line that traces from low challenge to high challenge. Yep. Now you've mapped that, I think, to the learning experience or a way to design to factor that in. What does that look like? Well, you know, one of the things that I've really found when I was, uh, you know, kind of when I was training, uh, doing my master's in instructional design and learning about it is that Instructional design has sort of decent answers for, you know, things where it's an information delivery problem or things where it's sort of very procedural and you just need to learn the steps. When it really came to skill development, it really felt like instructional design didn't have a lot of great answers for me. And so when I'm kind of looking around the world and seeing who's good at figuring out the skill development kind of thing, well, you know, video game designers, I I believe know a lot more about um, how to construct an environment based on skill development. Because if you think about it, when you first start playing any game, you're pretty bad at it, but the levels are pretty easy, right? And so then what they do is they track upward. So as your skills start to increase, they're going to start to ramp up the challenge. And sometimes they're going to give you challenges that are pretty hard and you're going to have to spin there for quite a while. And then sometimes you get challenges that you can blow by pretty easily and things Mm -hmm. like that. And so, but what it does is it keeps the level of challenge keeps stepping up and up and up as your um, ability progresses. And so that's a really nice kind of interesting model to think about skill development for our purposes. Is that a form of scaffolding, would you say? Uh, That's an interesting question. Um, I think it can involve scaffolding. I think scaffolding is sort of building structures underneath people so that as they're dealing with a challenging situation, they can... um, sort of artificially be pushed up to the level of ability. So it, um, I think I think flow state assumes that your abilities are sort of naturally improving through practice and you kind of keep getting better and better. But there may be points where we sort of scaffold your performance so that you can reach some of these harder goals and things like that. So like in video games, they have the concept of the power up. And so it, depending on what game you're playing, it's sort of magical extra abilities. Um, arguably, in Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, the lifelines would be sort of power-up examples or, um, yeah, they're sort of close. That's a little bit of a stretch of a definition, but close enough. You know, so, it, you know, when I hit a really hard thing, I can call on some of this extra thing. And I think that's, those things are sort of probably akin to scaffolding yes. to a certain extent. Interesting. Um it seems like as desirable as the flow state is, it uses it must use a lot of brain activity. So I'm wondering, is there a is uh, this is me just going with an assumption? Is there a is there too much of a good thing or a fatigue factor uh, yeah, that's, involved? That's a really interesting question because we know that there's a lot of things that cause sort of people to become exhausted. You know, cognitive. Um, overwhelming cognitive load, forcing yourself to concentrate for a long time and use willpower. Um, There's decision fatigue, where if we ask people to make too many choices. And yet, you know, we don't necessarily see some of those effects when we're in a well-designed video game. Um, You know, speaking of things that you can do for hours and hours and hours, I was talking to somebody who had played, gosh, it was something crazy. It was like 11 hours of It wasn't Call of Duty, but it was a similar kind of Mm -hmm. MMO, you know, um, multi massive multiplayer online game. And, uh, and they'd been playing it for, you know, 11 hours. Well, you know, 
we're, we've had a real hard time doing, you know, like work tasks for 11 hours and still be focused yeah, yeah. and things like that. So it's, it's actually an interesting area because really well-designed flow environments or tasks or things like that don't, we seem to have, you know, I mean, eventually you get like things like physical fatigue or you get hungry or, mm-hmm. you know, you need to use the bathroom or whatever, but we don't seem to get weary of them in the same way that we do when we're kind of forcing ourselves. To yeah, do I think you're right. It's somehow it's, it's, it's energizing. Um, but I know that feeling I'm thinking back as a kid, just playing too long a marathon of video games and your, your nerves are shot. It's, oh, yeah. it's a you, feeling you, of like overstimulation and, and stuff. I think you're really drained when you come out of flow state, but while you're in flow state, there seems to be, you know, yes. it, it seems like the energy just kind of keeps showing up for you and things like that. Yeah. And I don't want to, I don't want to say that always happens, but that seems to be kind of what's going on. Are there w- other ways in which I, I like your point earlier about how sometimes you have to look a little bit outside of the known uh, instructional design world, you know, uh, kind of the our bag of tricks or our theories, and then you, you see what's happening in other spaces to inform it. Mm-hmm. I think that's really true. But are there ways to, or do you have advice for instructional designers on how to influence the flow state? Um, any good video game designer is very aware of Csikszentmihalyi and flow state theory and all of those kinds of things. And they pay actually pay quite a lot of attention to it, mm-hmm. but it doesn't happen. You can't really design for it. You have to sort of test your way into it. It's kind of like the word engagement we use. Engagement yeah. is a subjective reaction. You can't make people engaged. Yeah. You, you hope to do stuff that will be engaging, mm-hmm. but it's not always going to be engaging to everybody, right. right? Well, and one of my big issues with engagement is one of the biggest factors is engagement is how much does that particular person need or perceive that they need the thing that you're teaching them. Mm-hmm. So that's engagement as a product of a situation in the learner's world, not a product of the materials. Yes. And we always talk about engagement like it's going to be a product of the materials. I'm going to figure out how to make an engaging video about printer repair. Well, you know, sometimes it doesn't matter if the video is about engaging or not in terms of, you know, you want it to be, if you want it to be clear, you want it to be easy to understand, but ultimately it doesn't have to have, you know, unicorns and rainbows. If somebody's printer's broken, they're going to be engaged in your video about printer repair. And so it's really much more about their situation than it is about the materials. That's right. You're meeting that moment of need. You have their attention because their printer's broken. They have mm-hmm. to print something. Yeah. Which is why we look at things like scenario-based learning, because if I can put either a literal or metaphorical broken printer down in front of them so that there's at least a problem immediately to solve, then it's still going to be more interesting for them to then learn about fixing printers than if I'm just going to say, hey, learn about fixing printers and sometime in the future you'll need that skill, which is, you know, where we're, the situation we frequently find ourselves in and it's a bit of a problem. Yeah, or worse, when you need the immediate help and you've got the wrong format in front of you. Yeah. Watch this video for ten. You don't even here's have, a half hour video, and you yeah. need you need three minutes at between minute fourteen and minute seventeen. But you yeah. got to watch the whole thing to find it. Yeah, those are all problems, definitely. Yeah, interesting. Um, but yeah, so video game designers absolutely are aware of the concept of flow. There's a very good slide share out there called I think it's like the making of a monster hit. It's about plants versus zombies which is a pop cap game and plants versus zombies. You have a house and zombies are attacking your house. And if you, 
you can plant different types of plants that can defend the house against the zombies. And if you plant the right combination of plants, they'll defend against these zombies. And it sounds very strange, but it's actually a quite fabulous game and seriously addictive and don't start playing unless yeah. you've got the time. It's been a long time, but I had fun playing that once. Yeah, yeah. Um, but if you go and look at this uh, slide share, and uh, I can give you the link for it, but um, if you go and look at the slide share, you can see all of the testing that they did to make sure that they were balancing their difficulty levels. So what they did is they had people play all of the levels many, many times, and they tracked how many times did people win the level, how many times did people fail the level, how many times did people restart the level. And um, there's a nice downward curve where they start out with a level of difficulty where almost essentially everyone is going to win the level. And you know, they want to make sure that the very first level or two levels or three levels are something that pretty much anybody can walk up and mm -hmm. win. And, and they're going to gradually increase the difficulty, but they actually do all of the testing to map this. And if they're going along and they're at the point where they want it to be at this level of difficulty, and it turns out that everybody's really struggling on this level, they go, oh, okay, it's too hard, and it's outside of... I don't know if they were using the language of flow, but that's really what it looks like. Um, so we're outside of our difficulty curve here. This is way too hard a level. And so what we're going to do is um, go in and adjust the level and bring the level of difficulty yeah. down so that it matches a bit better. It's similar in concept with the way we assess our assessments to make sure certain questions aren't too hard mm -hmm. and we can fix it. Except in this case, it's really the experience design. And that's another fray, a buzzword. Is this, do you hear flow in a context of learning experience design? Is that yeah, sometimes. putting that together? Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, and I mean, it's based on the very similar principles to like old school mastery learning and things like that, which people don't talk about that often anymore. You know, it's more fun, hopefully, than mastery learning if it's done right, but it's the same. It's the same basic ideas. One of the other big fundamental pieces of flow is a structured flow of goals too. So the idea is, is rather than having a single big goal that you're trying to accomplish, what you do is you have big goals that break down into smaller goals that break down into smaller goals that break down into smaller goals, however many layers is appropriate. And what, so that means that there's always some immediate thing that you can accomplish, but that thing that you accomplish is probably going to lead you into your next sort of tier of goals and give you some things that you want to accomplish there that leads you into the next tier that leads you into the next tier. So for example, if you think about Monopoly, right? What's the very first thing you usually start out playing when you're playing Monopoly that you're trying to accomplish? You just try to buy properties. Sure. Right. Okay. So you might buy one of the green properties, one of the dark green properties, and then that automatically does what? Once you have a dark green property, you're going to want to get the, the monopoly of the dark green. Yep. So now by buying one green property, so that's that lowest level goal is I'm going to try to buy a property card, but that gives you the goal of trying to get three green properties. So yes. now that's your mission. So what took started out at the smallest level goal goes to the next tier of goal, which is I want to get three green properties. And once I get three green properties, I can start to put houses on the properties. And once I get enough houses, I can have hotels and then sometime after that you get to world domination. So, so these um, incremental goals, but you, you, see, uh, you see bigger goals. Right. So these little goals of buying properties feed up into the next tier of goals, which is getting monopolies, which feeds into the next tier of goals of building houses, which feeds into the next tier of goals of building hotels. And you have, um, you have that structure. And almost every game that you're ever going to encounter is going to have some loose version of that structure. So if you think about football, your um, immediate goal 
is you're on your first down and you've got four downs and you need to get 10 yards. So as soon as I get four yards, it feeds immediately into the next level of goal, which is I need another six yards and I'm going to, you know, and I'm going to, then I'm going to try to get a second down. And then, so your, your lowest level goal is to move forward some number of yards. Then your next level of goal is to get a first down. And then if you get enough of those, hopefully you get a touchdown. And if you get enough touchdowns, you win a game. And if you win enough games, you get to the Super Bowl and then you, you know, those kinds of things. So there's about what, five tiers of, kind of goal structure there. Yes. You know, in, you know, you see this in, like I said, almost any, any kind of game, you know, any game that you want to, uh, think of, you're going to probably find it. And even in something as simple as jigsaw puzzles, this is uh, an example from Jesse Shell's book, The Art of Game Design. He talks about how there's a structured flow of goals to jigsaw puzzles that goes from easy to difficult. So the very first thing you do after you dump the box out on the table is you, like you flip all the pieces over and that's really easy. There's no challenge level to that at all. But then you find the corners, which mm-hmm. is pretty easy, right? Then you find the edge pieces, which is a little bit harder than finding the corners. Then you have to start putting the edge pieces together. So you get the frame of the jigsaw puzzle mm-hmm. and that's a little harder still. Yeah. Then you will pick some easy object in your picture. So you might pick the red balloon and sort out all the red pieces and assemble the red balloon. Then you might do that with some of the other big, easy blocks. Then you start getting into the harder blocks until finally you're doing, you know, like pattern recognition with the gray undifferentiated blob to try to figure out where it plugs in. So it's a structured flow experience where everything you do feeds into the next thing that you do. And also you've got a gradual increasing level of difficulty, but you get more and more familiar with the puzzle as you go along. And so your ability to operate in that puzzle environment and also to remember kind of strategies for doing jigsaw puzzles increases as you go along. So your ability rises to match the challenge. As, yeah. as the experience goes, and you're on. building the context and structure mm-hmm. vi- visually as you go, which is why I never will do those optical illusion puzzles where it's oh, like right. every piece is the same. <laughs> yeah, forget it. So one of the things that I've really been looking at is this question of kind of skill um, skill acquisition, and I define something as skill. Uh, the question I use to differentiate skills from procedures or knowledge-based things is, is it reasonable to think that somebody can be proficient without practice? And it turns out if you apply that litmus test to stuff, you, you sort of see the differentiation. So if it comes to filling out a timesheet, yeah, it's reasonable to think somebody can be proficient without practice or printing a document in a software program. You know, as long as they've got the procedure, they could probably be proficient without practice. Mm-hmm. But if it comes to designing a brochure or if it comes to interviewing an employee or if it comes to creating a plate of food in a restaurant or something, you know, you would, you would say, no, it's not reasonable for people to be proficient at that thing without having practicing a little bit. You know, you're going to need to practice to get good at designing brochures, or you're going to need to practice to get good at giving employees feedback or interviewing employees or something like that. So is it rising complexity or? To a certain extent. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, you can have simpler and more complex skills certainly Mm -hmm. too. So if that's the case, then if we start to look at how does somebody learn how to do that, we want to start to think about how do we design skill modules for them. And one of the things that I've really been thinking about lately is I think we struggle with cognitive skills 
because we don't see visible results from things. And the interesting thing is, one of the examples I use when I'm teaching this is, if I'm creating a curriculum to train new restaurant managers, I'm going to hire people in, they're going to be assistant managers in restaurants, and I want to create a curriculum for them. It would totally be normal to say, okay, Monday we're going to do customer service, and Tuesday we're going to do managing employees, and Wednesday we're going to do food safety, and Thursday we're going to do inventory and financials, and so on and so forth, and have this very discrete subject matter organization for uh, for the curriculum. But if you go to basketball camp or you go to, you know, um, tennis camp or something, you would never have a curriculum at tennis camp that's organized in terms of Monday, all we're going to do is serve. Tuesday, all we're going to do is return at the net, you know. Wednesday, all we're going to do is play the, you know, the back of the court or basketball. You know, Monday, all we're going to do is free throws. Tuesday, all we're going to do is passing. Wednesday, all we're going to do is defense, uh, you know, blocking or something like that. So we would never do that in these visible skill areas. What we'll do is we might have an intense, like a little intensive thing on one of those skill areas, like free throws or defense or passing or whatever, but we're going to mix that up. We're going to have some general skill drills. During the day, we're going to probably have some scrimmage time. We're going to probably have some free play. We're probably going to do some intense work on some of these skills. We're probably going to mix it up into sort of um, more general drills and then very specific ones. And we're going to mix it up. And I'm going to make sure that you practice this skill multiple times over the course of, you know, the week or something like that. So managing a restaurant is not less complicated or even less of a skill, arguably, than something like basketball, but yet we we don't use those same strategies when we think of skill design. So if you were creating the restaurant management game, right, you would never have module, the module one of the game is the customer service module, module two of the game is the finance module, module three of the game is the inventory module. What you'd have is you'd have, you're going to manage the first day in your restaurant, but you know, it's going to be a slow Tuesday morning in the restaurant and it's not going to be very busy and the challenges aren't going to be that difficult. And then, then once you've mastered that level, you're going to manage maybe Tuesday night. It's a little busier and there's a few more things going on and you have Mm. to figure out some other stuff. And then you're going to work your way up to like Friday, Saturday nights. And then, um, you know, there's a term in uh, game design called the boss fight, which um, at the restaurant I used to work in when I was in college would definitely have been Mother's Day brunch, big brunch place. Mother's Day is the epic boss fight day of, of brunch yeah. for the entire year. <laughs> yes. So, you know, if we think about some of those alternate structures for game design, it can really change the way that we think about how we would organize a curriculum. That's very helpful. And you, you have a great depiction of some of this in your book of the bicycler. Yeah. Yeah. The bicycle going up the hill. So when it's all new content and that's all we're doing is it's kind of like basically biking straight uphill for the entire, uh, length of the, the length of the lesson. (laughs) And, um, and that's not really great. You know, the game structures, which is more of this flow, uh, structure. The idea is you bike uphill intensely for a bit, but then you might be get to cruise for a little bit. And mm-hmm. then we throw in a new challenge and you've got a bit more uphill, but then I'm going to get to be, you know, some time to be comfortable with it and start to coast a bit. And then I'm going to get another challenge. So it's some spacing point. and pacing mm-hmm. and uh, managing fatigue factors. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and, yeah, because if you ask people to bike uphill for an eight-hour workshop, they're still going to take breaks. You just don't know where they are. Yeah, you know, they're right. even if they just tune out. Right? Yeah, yeah, because nobody can sustain concentration on you mm-hmm. know a massive amount of new information for eight straight hours. We get tired. Yeah. Cognitive load, mm-hmm. uh, all of that. Absolutely. Excellent. Any other thoughts or advice today? Yeah, I, I'd certainly recommend that people kind of go take a look at some of that. Uh, I feel like there's a really a lot of really nice, valuable stuff to learn about um, in terms of game design and how to apply that to skill development. Um, the Extra Credits video series on YouTube is very good. Jesse Shell's book is very good. Uh, and Rafe Coster's, uh, I'll get you the title. It's something It's it's something to do with fun, and I can't remember right now. But the, um, the author's name? Rafe Coster, K-O-S-T-E-R. Okay, that way we can we yeah, can search find and find it. it. Mm-hmm. Um, is a fantastic book about some of those same same principles, and I think they all apply really really well to um, to flow state and to learning design. And of course, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi's book on flow is is would be on the list as well. Yes, wonderful. And uh, you know, a quick hit would be his TED talks as well. Mm-hmm. I recommend those. Yep. And actually, the Wikipedia explanation is a good, straightforward explanation mm. of it that's not a bad thing to take a look that's at. That's one of my first stops always mm-hmm. uh, in every endeavor. Julie, thank you for your time today. This has been wonderful. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure. A lot of good information for our listeners to follow up on. So thank you again. All right, great. Thank you for listening. To catch up on all of our shows, subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Learning Circle is produced and distributed by the Defense Acquisition University.